So this morning, uh, I want to also draw your attention to under your pew. We are... Uh, we now have Bibles under most of the seats in front of you today, uh, most of them. There's a couple seats I still got to order more for. So if you don't have a Bible with you today, I always encourage you to follow along, though we do have the slides up here. Uh, we encourage you to also, you can have the Bible there in your hands. You can read some of the context uh, when I get really boring uh, in certain parts. Uh, just kidding. Um, uh, you can use it to take notes. It's hard. It's a hardback. We got that so you can pull out the brand new Echo Lake pins we have in the shiny blue there, uh, and you can take notes. Taking notes is really important on the back of those sheets you were handed in today because it keeps you engaged. I don't know if you're like me and my ADD mind, but my mind tends to water. I tend to stare out the, the sky. I tend to look at everything moving around. Taking notes helps you keep engaged. You don't got to write everything down, but write down a few things, a few key things you feel like the Lord is saying to you that you may take it with you. All right. So with that said, we are going to continue our series uh, in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts. And Acts is all about how the Holy Spirit spread the gospel through the early church. The gospel being that Jesus Christ came to this earth to show us who God was and how to live for him and who he's calling us to be. And that he died on the cross, rose three days later that all who put their faith in him as their Savior and Lord will find salvation and a right relationship with our Creator again. So the, God, so the Holy Spirit moved through the New Testament church and took them from about 120 people up in an upper room to millions across the world. And so we're unpacking in this series how the Holy Spirit accomplished this. How did the Holy Spirit accomplish this? Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been given the same purpose as the early Christians, to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And you've been given the same power that they had in the Holy Spirit. And last week, we saw an example of this power. As we saw Peter, after healing a man, preached in such a powerful way that it surprised everyone. Because as it says, he was an uneducated dude. He was a hick. He was a redneck. No offense to any rednecks here. Right? He's this uneducated guy, and yet he spoke so boldly and powerfully about Jesus. You know, and, and Tim, when he was preaching, he, he said something that really struck me as I was watching from Pennsylvania. He said that the things that the New Testament Christians did back then were normal to them. But if we were to do them, we would call it revival. Now, for something to need reviving, it means that it's dead. And I think, sadly, for far too many, the idea of preaching the gospel boldly with courage, has died. It needs reviving. So I want to piggyback on Tim's message a bit, and I want to talk about how we become bold in preaching the gospel. Because if you sit here today, if your faith is in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you believe he is the only hope for salvation, people need your boldness. They desperately need your boldness. They need your boldness in the same way that someone with, with a cancer needs a cure or with any disease. They need a cure. You have it in the gospel. They need you to have the courage to tell them about Jesus. Because if what Jesus says is true, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but him, then could there be any message that's more important than the gospel? And so my, my prayer is today that you will 
honestly sit there and want to be bold for the gospel. If you're a Christian, this should be a desire of yours. And then you will ask the Lord, Lord, what do I need to know today about boldness? And my prayer is for any of you sitting here today or watching at home that don't have a faith in the Lord, you're still trying to figure out how God is, that today you'll get a glimpse of what a Christian should look like. Because far too many of us, before we became Christians, we judged Christianity based on the people we saw. And if you've been around the church long enough, you know that not everybody who says they're Christian actually lives that kind of life. And so my hope is today you'll see what a Christian should look like and that will draw you closer to the message of the cross. All right, so as we get into this, let me set up the context for you, right? So Peter got done preaching, right? He was preaching to the crowd that was in awe and this religious sect of rich people called the Sadducees, they didn't like this. So they had him arrested, they got annoyed by this. He had a huge impact. And so finally, after some back and forth, they realized they got to let him go. So they give Peter and John a warning. They say, look, you stop preaching the gospel or else. And they let him go. And so in today's message, we're going to see what Peter and John do after their release in our search to become more bold in preaching the gospel. I'm going to start off in verse 23. When they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and they go on to quote Psalm chapter 1, why did the Gentiles rage and the, and, and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were, should say they, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were at together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. So Peter and John, they're released, and they go to find their friends, first thing they do. Their brothers and their sisters in Christ, and they tell them everything that has happened. And how does everyone respond? They celebrate it. They're like, oh man, you got persecuted for Jesus. That is so cool, dude. They got excited. Now, why did they get excited? Because, Matthew, because Jesus said, he said in Matthew 5, verse 11, he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they are celebrating the Lord's work. Man, we got persecuted because we were doing what God has called us to do. It's a cool feeling. Not that persecution's fun. But to know it's not because you're doing something wrong, but because you do something right, there's joy in that. So is that it? 
They celebrated, and then they went over to their coffee house for Tasty's treats, for scrumptious snacks. No, it's not what they do. And I want you to pay attention to what they do, because this is our, our first key to becoming bold in preaching the gospel. Verse 29, it says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your service to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They get done celebrating, and first thing they do is they pray for boldness. They say, Lord, help me be bold in preaching the gospel. You want to be bold? Ask the Lord to help you. Ask the Lord to help you. When, think about it, when is the last time you asked the Lord to help you be bold in preaching or sharing Christ with somebody? When's the last time you asked him for courage to speak in an uncomfortable situation? They say, God, look what these people have threatened us with. We need your help to be bold. Help us to look straight in those threats, straight in the eye, and be bold. This is a good reminder for us because of the potential dangers of preaching the gospel and the fear that they can create. Preaching the gospel is dangerous. It's dangerous nowadays. Now, to be clear, they're facing a much different danger than, than we are. These were men and women who were going to be beaten, thrown in jail, and most of them executed for talking about Jesus. It's not kind of danger that we're facing right now. Not like the danger that our Afghan brothers and sisters in Christ are facing right now. I was reading a couple days ago uh, an interview with World Magazine senior editor. She was talking about how a couple years ago, Christians decided to start putting their religious affiliation on their ID cards, because they do that in Afghanistan. You put your religious affiliations actually on your ID. It'd be like having it on your driver's license. And they do it for many reasons that aren't important for our conversation today. But she said, now that the Taliban has access to that, Christians are starting to be targeted. These men and women are going to face a test of boldness that you and I will probably never know. We should remember to be praying for them. Christians in America, we don't know what true persecution is, at least not yet. But as Tim said last week, it doesn't mean we don't have real fears to struggle with. Tim, you know, Tim said, preaching the gospel will offend people. It offends people. We're not in a society right now that loves to hear other people's opinions. We, we're, we're not allowed in the same way anymore to have concrete opinions on things. We have to be okay with everybody's point of view, even if they clash and it's impossible for both to be right. It doesn't matter. And so some of us live in fear of the consequences if we were to start being more bold in our faith. For you students, young people, it costs you popularity in your schools. It costs you popularity on social media. For everybody, it costs you a promotion at work or a bigger prayer raise. It costs you your job in some cases. You're labeled some nasty things by your friends or your neighbors. Be alienated from your extended family. I mean, some of us are afraid of just looking like fools in front of our children when we talk about the gospel because we're afraid we won't say the right thing or because they see all of our faults, all of our sins, and all of our failures. These are real fears that Christians deal with. 
And all too often, we allow these fears to prevent us from telling somebody about Jesus. I mean, where have you been hesitant in your life because of fear of what someone might think or might say or might do? Now, as a side note, soapbox moment, sometimes persecution comes not because we were bold in sharing the faith, but we were a jerk when doing it. Some Christians out there are complete and utter jerks in the way that they are bold. There's a difference in being bold as, uh, and an arrogant know-it-all and being bold and humble in Christ, being patient with people as Christ is patient with us. I'm just going to keep that as a side note. All right, back to our main note. This prayer teaches us something about fear that we deal with when becoming bold. It teaches us this. If your faith is really in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then your call to share Jesus with people is not something that you're only called to do when it's safe and comfortable. I mean, look at how these believers prayed. They said, Lord, look upon their threats and grant us boldness. The focus of their prayer was asking God to help them preach. Their primary concern was obedience to the Lord. And this is where boldness begins. It begins with being obedient to the Lord. I believe the biggest enemy in sharing our faith is not circumstances. It's not the wickedness and injustice of this world. It's just our own proneness to be disobedient to God's word. Because let's be honest with ourselves all of us. When we are facing difficulty, we usually focus our prayers on asking God to deliver us. Lord, get me out of this. Lord, save me. I don't, maybe you pray better than I do, but that's what I'm praying. I'm so, I'm so, this is so rough, Lord, help me. We want to be saved. And I don't think it's wrong to ask God to save us. I mean, look at the Psalms, David in the Psalms, time and time again, he's like, Lord, where are you? Deliver me. But I think the problem is, when asking for deliverance becomes our primary prayer, when it should be obedience to the Lord. I'm gonna say this again. The problem is when asking for deliverance becomes our primary prayer, when it should be obedience to the Lord. See, in this situation, these followers of Jesus, they knew one thing, that God wanted to tell them about Jesus. And, they, and there was no exceptions, literally no exceptions to this. It was a command. And so that trumps everything else. And you can see this in how they addressed God. They used the title Sovereign Lord. And the Greek word here, it, it's the communication from a slave to a master. This is where we get the, the, the American word despot. Someone who is a ruler with absolute power and authority. In other words, God told us to share Jesus, so that's what we're going to do. Share Jesus, period, end of story. And I can only wonder, what would the world look like if we all had this kind of view? If it's true Jesus is who he says he is, if it's true that he has told us to preach the gospel, 
baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to make disciples. If that is the call, what would the world look like? What would our churches look like if we actually lived it out with this kind of priority? And not just when it was comfortable for us. I think one of the mistakes that we make in America is we believe that God is first concerned with our happiness and comfort. That is his primary goal. All my children, let me love and bless them. And, and, it, and we don't, you know, it doesn't get helped by preachers who preach this garbage. Or even, you know, we, we, we go out and we cherry pick these verses to make us feel warm and comfortable in on the inside. You know, verses like Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. Now, we've all seen this verse on signs and on blankets. Some of us, we have it on our mug when we're at home sipping our chamomile tea right, reading our books, God's abundant blessings wrapped up in a, a blanket next to a fire that has another verse on it. But this isn't the entire verse. Did you know that? This is actually not the whole verse of Psalm 46.10. For some reason, we leave out the rest of this verse on people's mugs and blankets and pillows. The whole verse is this, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God's primary concern is not our comfort. It is his name being exalted that is his primary concern. That's his primary concern. And why? Because he is the only one who can provide salvation to the world. So you know what that means? That everything in our lives is about the gospel. Everything. Everything is about the gospel. I mean, if Jesus, is it true what he says and he teaches that sin separates us from God for all of eternity, then what is some momentary discomfort and pain and struggling in this life that has an end compared to eternity? If it means helping to lead other people to Christ, the gospel is our main focus in life if you are a Christian. Everything in your life should be about the gospel. It should interweave into everything that you do. These men and women got this. Do you get this? This is what it means to be a Christian. This is why being a Christian is not easy. You give up your life for Christ. Do you get this in your life? And does your life reflect it? Is his gospel interwoven into everything that you decide and direction and things that you think about? Now, I want to be clear. It's not like... It's not like these were superhuman Christians, right? Because sometimes we read the New Testament, and because we just get snippets, like there's a whole lot more that went on, you know, during the time of Acts, but Luke just includes these parts, right? Okay? It doesn't include every second, every conversation. So we get these superhuman view of Christians. We're like, wow, pedestal, put them up there. But they were broken men and women just like us. I mean, half the, the letters that Paul writes are to churches that are struggling with something. Look at Peter. Right, who just preached this entire great message, thousands came to the Lord. He's also the guy who denied Christ three times. And if you go on to reading, he, just, he screws up other things later on in the Bible. So these were not perfect human beings. So if they're not perfect like us, the question 
we should want to know is how do we develop this kind of attitude? How do we get in a life where we're focused constantly on obedience to God and we're not distracted by fear? How do we get it? All right, let's go back and, and let's look at their prayer and it's gonna tell us. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your, your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see what they're doing here? They are reminding themselves that God is in control. God is so much in control that he uses the things that the enemy does to fulfill his purposes. I mean, look at the life of Jesus. The way that it ended, it looks like evil won the day. He did. But in reality, evil was playing into the hands of God. He used evil to do the greatest thing that ever happened in the history of humanity. And if he used the evil to do the greatest thing that ever happened in the history of humanity, then that teaches us that there's nothing he cannot use in our life for his purposes. And there's strength to be found in that. This is how we become bold. We find strength in his sovereignty. We spend too much time as Christians in our lives listening to our fear, and we do not spend enough time talking to our fear. See, when you remember that God is in control, it changes how you see things. See, we're always worried about the unknown, aren't we? We love to play the game, what if? Oh man, we love to play, what if this? What if that? What if this? Even though 99% of it never happens, we love to play, what if? You've been playing, what if, this week with something, I guarantee you. But the Bible shows us time and time again, we have literally no clue what is a part of God's plan. No clue. If, if you... If God can use the death of the Savior of the world for his plans, there's literally nothing that you can look at and say God can't use this. Nothing. We have no clue. And when you realize that you have no clue, then you're like, you know what? I can't figure this up. I might as well give up control. And when you give up that control and I'm having to know, there's literally only one thing left to do. Do what God is calling you to do. He's in control, I'm not, so I'm just going to do what he wants, and I'm going to trust him with the rest. So like we read in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Say, so God, whether I get pushed off a cliff or you save me, I'm going to do what you've called me to do. I'm going to trust you with the rest. Can you say that to the Lord? Can you mean that when you say that to the Lord? Now listen, I, I want to add that belief in God's sovereignty does not give us immunity from fear. Okay, fear is a natural human emotion. Okay, it is not sin to feel fear. Okay, you don't, it's, you don't, it's not like you go, I want to feel fear now and then fear happens. You just feel fear. It's natural human emotion. But what God's sovereignty does, it gives us the courage to overcome that fear and be obedient to the Lord. In spite of the fear, 
That's when it becomes sin. It's when we allow the fear to prevent us from doing what God has called us to do. That's what the sovereignty of the Lord does for us. But there's something more to the sovereignty of God. There's something that we do to have that as such a foundation in our lives that we can ignore the fear. Because if, if it was something that just came on us automatically, I would not have to preach this sermon because we would all walk around, God's sovereign, God's sovereign. But we don't do that, do we? It's not an automatic thing. Lord says, you can choose my sovereignty if you want. So how do we choose it? How do we choose to focus on it? Well, we see that they do this. They show us again. I've already read it twice. They quoted Psalms 2. They found their sovereignty in Scripture. All throughout Acts, I believe, if I remember correctly, there is around 200 references to the Old Testament, either by direct quotation, a synopsis of a passage, or retelling the story of some event. That is what fuels their boldness. That's what gives them their sovereignty is Scripture. It is the Word of God, that dusty book that most of us do not pick up but once a week or once a month. That's what fuels the boldness. That's the key to understanding is sovereignty. Pastor Charles Spurgeon used to say that we should be walking Bibles. Walking Bibles. Why? Because Scripture hidden in our heart, can minister to us in times of need. In crises, we don't often have time to, excuse me, crisis, stop, let me just look up some scriptures. But when they are in your heart, it is amazing to me how many times since I took memorizing scripture seriously, I'm in the middle of a situation, and this verse I memorize is, boom, pops into my mind. It is the coolest thing in the world, I kid you not. Instantly, it speaks to your fear, or it speaks to your pride, or it speaks to whatever's going on in your life. In fact, one pastor said, he said, you should know the scripture so well that when life cuts you, you bleed God's word. Well, that's good. Do you bleed God's word when life cuts you? Let me show you how it works. When the fear of not knowing what to say in a situation cuts you, you bleed Exodus 4, 11 through 12, where God says to Moses, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or seen or blind or deaf? Is it not I, the Lord? Therefore, go, Moses, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall say. When something in your life, it just feels too big, you bleed Jeremiah 32, 27. It says, behold, I am the Lord. The God of all flesh is anything too hard for me. When you, when you are cut by life and you, and you feel alone, and lost, you bleed, Lamentations 3, 22 through 24, it says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, and therefore I will hope in him. We could go on all stinking day with how verses pop into our lives and remind us of his sovereignty. Let me tell you right now, it is a true statement. You can either have Scripture speak to you or you can have fear speak to you. Literally, the choice is ours. Because I've told you a million times, since I have taken memorizing Scripture seriously, time and time again, the Lord will bring a Scripture to my, to my mind. But one thing the Lord has never done, he's never brought a Scripture to my mind that I haven't memorized. 
This is the relationship we have with God. We have a role to play. This is why I've told you so many times about the Bible memory app. The Bible memory app, it's called Scripture Typer. I think it's in both Android and uh, the iPhone. Years ago, I knew, three, four years ago when I started with this app, I knew the same 15 verses that every one of you know. Same 15 that we hear all the time. That we learn from people holding up signs at a stadium. Like John 3.16. And I started, I downloaded this app because of my good buddy. And I now know 211 verses. 211 I've learned. Now is it because I'm superhuman Christian? No. It's just because I had a buddy who shared the app with me. And he said, look, I'm going to hunt you down every day until you're spending five minutes a day memorizing scripture. And so that's what I've done. Five minutes a day. Six days a week. And now, three years later, I know 211 verses that I can use to speak to God's sovereignty in my life. You must get Scripture into your heart. Five minutes a day. Now I do eight. But five minutes. Take five minutes away from Facebook. Okay, five minutes away from the favorite Netflix show. Five minutes from scrolling YouTube or TikTok or whatever you do. Five minutes. Start memorizing scripture. In fact, you memorize it, come see me. I got a couple cool tips I will teach you to help you with it. Nothing replaces the power of scripture in your lives. Don't go another day without getting God's word into your life because it is what fuels your boldness. You guys with me, church? All right, so we talked about how they prayed for boldness, how they were focused on obedience, how they found strength in his, his sovereignty, which was based on Scripture. But I want you to notice where this is all happening. Are John and Dewan, are they having this little powwow by themselves? High-fiving themselves in a dark room somewhere? No, they are together with the church. This is the other part that we see that helps us in our boldness. There is strength in numbers. It's important because in this American individualistic, I do what I want, when I want, how I want society, that it's caused us to lower our standards for fellowship. We look at fellowship as being online, chit-chatting with people. Not that it doesn't have its place, but it's unfortunately dented into people being actually in the same room with each other. And one of the saddest fallouts from this is it has left us ill-equipped for crises because we don't have people to encourage us or celebrate with us or pray with us or call us out when we're just being stupid or prideful. I mean, think about it. Anywhere in your life, anywhere where you want to commit to something, what do they always tell you? Get a partner, don't they? Get a partner. Get someone to hold you accountable, to encourage you. Why? Because we are weaker on our own. We must be committed to fellowship as Christians. It's not a, you know, being a part and in the church is not an option. It's a command of the Lord. It's literally there in the Bible. To be together in the house, to talk, to touch. I mean, I read this, my wife sent me this fantastic tweet this week, and I thought, man, what a shame it is to where we are as a culture. And the tweet said this, that there'll be Afghan Christians who die this week because they've chosen faithfulness over safety. And on the flip side, there will be American Christians who skip church this week because they've chosen comfort over faithfulness. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes we're out of town. 
Sometimes we're sick. Sometimes we physically cannot make it here because of illness. And, it's good. and in those moments, it's great when we tune in online. But if you choose to watch at home, when you can be in the house of the Lord, all you're doing is weakening your ability to be bold and weakening your ability to help other people be bold, period. And that's why when we come on Sundays, we don't just come and we sit and we leave. We should actually talk to people, including people we don't know. Go up to a stranger and say hi. I know some of you, that's just like, no, what are we doing? But you're all really cool people. I have talked to, I think, all of you. There is none of you that I would not recommend having someone talk to. You're all fantastic people. You really are. I enjoy talking to all of you. When we get to know each other, and this is another reason we should be serving in ministry because it helps us get to know each other, we become stronger. It's true what they say. We are better together. Some of you, you've been on the outskirts. You come, you go. And I'm not thinking of anybody in particular because I don't pay that much attention because I'm a guy and we just don't. But I just know by human nature, some of you are just on the outskirts. You're still coming here, but you're still alone because you haven't got to know people. You haven't taken that step. Man, when we're under attack, you know this, if you've been a Christian for a while, it is easy to get discouraged and to lose our boldness and to compromise, to not be obedient to God. But when we're together, we see great encouragement and strength from knowing that we're not alone. And I wonder how many of these people were in this room just doubting what they could do. And then John and Peter walk in and say, man, thousands came to the Lord and this happened and this happened. And they got inspired by, wow, God can do that. This is what happens when we are together. And when you do these things, your perspective changes. You stop looking at your circumstances and you, and you start looking to God and the power that he has given to you. You, you become like Isaiah, one of my favorite passages, Isaiah 61, when he was delivering a message on behalf of the Lord. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. If you are preaching the message of Jesus, this is the exact thing that you are doing. And sometimes we don't do it because we don't feel like we're good enough to do it. But look again, where they were looking for power, they said, Lord, give us what we need. It wasn't Peter's power that did this. It wasn't John's power that did this. It was the power of God. All they had to do was be obedient. Some of us, we have never felt that power because we've never been obedient to the Lord. Oh, man, I am living proof right now I am the oldest guy in the books, but I've been around for 42 years. And I will tell you right now, there is nothing more exciting, more thrilling when you get out of that comfort zone, no matter how broken and fallen and, and sinful you are, and you are bold to tell somebody about Jesus or to tell somebody, I'm gonna pray for you or to tell somebody, hey, what, why don't you come to church or to share a Bible passage with them or whatever the Lord is putting on you. In those moments when you are obedient, I tell you the Lord fills you with his spirit. He fills you. He empowers you. There is nothing more exciting. I believe with every ounce of my being that the only hope for this world is Jesus Christ.
The gospel is the only thing that makes sense. And I also know, without a doubt, that there are people in your lives, they need your boldness. I don't care how much you messed up. I don't care how many opportunities you've wasted. I don't care how broken you think you are or how much you think you don't know. They need your boldness, not by your power, but by his. The only choice is, will we be obedient to the call?